0: In the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for our Savior. Father, we thank you that you have placed us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Father, we we thank you for every blessing bestowed upon us. Father, there were prayers this week, needs that arose in the congregation. You have provided, and according to Your will, we thank You for those. We still pray for those, Father, that are still struggling with illnesses and all the uh, things that come with this life. Father, we pray for Your provision, for Your will to be done. In that, in all things, Father, You are at work sanctifying us and bringing us to the conformity to the image of of your beloved Son, and Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we uh, remember this morning those who are in prison, those who are suffering for the gospel's sake. We pray for them, Father. Father, let us draw sobriety in the light of their sufferings, let us live a life that honors you, Father. Let us rejoice in your blessings and also in the afflictions that are part of the journey, Father. Give us grace to persevere. I pray this morning, Father, for my hearers, that you bless them and that they may grow in holiness and love and much assurance, Father. Give me grace to speak with simplicity and with faithfulness. Help me, Father, to be faithful to your word, all to the glory of Jesus Christ and the edification of the church. We thank you, Father, in the mighty and holy name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, if everybody has uh, their, uh, their confessions, let us go to chapter 18. Chapter eighteen. Although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God in a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity in sincerity endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace, and may rejoice in the hope of glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Now, if you look at your uh, study guides, I try to make it simple. We're going to spend time uh, in the first paragraph of this confession. I exhort you to Read the confession to take the time to, uh, to uh, study it and understand what is being said and measure it against the countering of scriptures. You remember that the infallible rule of faith is the word of God. Nevertheless, this, the confession, is a rule of faith that sits under the counsel of scripture. It serves us as a safeguard to understand what are the tenets of the faith, what are the essentials of the faith, and why we believe what we believe. So it it is very essential for us, therefore, to have a grasp of what what it is that we confess and why we confess it. The church from the beginning has been a confessing church. Even in the Old Testament, we see that God gives to His people certain touching stones of orthodoxy, where where the people of God could distinguish themselves from others, from other religions. So this is important, therefore, for us. So I exhort you to read the confession. We're going to spend some time in chapter 1. So before we plunge into, um, excuse me, chapter 18. Before we plunge into examining this wonderful doctrine of assurance of salvation, I want to remind us that God indeed has provided and want all true believers to have confidence and the certainty of his promises. Therefore, we must endeavor to have a biblical grasp and understanding of his promises, and this indeed is our duty and responsibility. Now, from the offset, I want us to understand that what we are dealing here in this part of Chapter 18 of the Confession is the quintessential question, which is this. How can I know? How can I have assurance that God will keep his promises? How can I know for sure that I am saved? Now, it is okay to ask. Even Abraham asked the question of God when God set forth the covenant before him and promised him an inheritance. What was the question of Abraham? Do you remember? Lord, what shall you give me? Right? I have no descendants. Right? Eliezer would be My servant will be my heir. Right? You remember that. So it is okay to ask this question. It is good for us to know, to know our faith. Now, this indeed will be our task today. A task today. So in this first paragraph of chapter uh, 18, the authors of the confession have aligned for us three categories of individuals. Three categories of individuals. First, we see the temporary believers. Who are they? They are those who believe for a season, but later falter away. And then we have the unregenerate or false converts. There are those who uh, deceive themselves to the end. These are those who remain within the ranks of the church yet remain unconverted. And then we have the regenerate. Now, who are they? They are those who are born of the Spirit of God and continue to persevere and to have and seek a clear conscience before God. The confession identifies them in such a way. Listen, it says they are such as truly believe in the lord jesus and love him in sincerity endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him now i want i want just to pass through here i want to understand i want us to understand this you see god has god has orchestrated in such a way things in such a way that you can cultivate true biblical faith and assurance only in the context of living our lives in alignment with the moral restrictions, affections, and imperatives that He has prescribed for His people in Holy Scripture. What do I mean by that is this. When you allow sin in your life, and you neglect the study of the Word of God, the Bible, what happens, what follows... Is that you will lack assurance. When you allow sin in your life. When you allow sin in your life. And neglect the study of the word of God. What's gonna The consequence of that is that you are going to lack assurance. Now passing through this note. I want us to understand that. All these categories of people that we see here. All of these people have something in common. And I want you to think hard. And pay attention to what it says. All these three categories that we see laid out for us in the confession have something in common, and it's this. All of them, in one point in their lives, have professed faith in Jesus. All of them, in one point in their lives, have claimed Him as their personal Lord and Savior. Now, this is important for us to understand. Because, nevertheless, some of them are lost. So, in the light of this, the objection could be made, right? Wait a minute. I thought that all of those who believe shall be saved. Right? And indeed, this is the truth. That's the truth that the Bible expresses to us. So the question becomes, how can we harmonize this reality that we see in our experience with the truth that we see in the scripture? How can we harmonize this truth? That is the question before us. Now, the answer, we find it in scripture. You see, scripture presents to us two types of faith. There is what the Reformers call the viva fide. What, it, what is that? It is a fruit-yielding faith. Like Martin Luther said, when rebuttal by the Catholic Church, right? Because the Catholic Church, in the light of, of the doctrine set forth in Scripture, being defended by the Reformers, the Catholic Church rebuttled and said, that is an ungodly presumption. A legal fiction regarding the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. A man is not saved by faith alone without works, said the Catholic Church. And Luther responded, indeed a man is saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is not alone. Right? The second category of faith that the Bible presents to us is what the reformers call a mortis fide. Right, you have heard that word, rigus mortis. It's a faith that is dead. A faith that does not produce fruit. So in order for, for us to cultivate a biblical assurance of salvation and I, I want you to underline that word, a biblical assurance of salvation. Our task today, with the help of the Confession, will be to identify how does a living faith look like, and how does a death faith look like. Now, what we're going to do today is not exhaustive, by all means, it's just a... Brief introduction into this wonderful doctrine. I want to exhort you to study the scriptures and delve into this wonderful doctrine. So you have a biblical understanding of this doctrine. So nobody can challenge. And when they are challenging your faith, you know why you believe what you believe and how to defend it. So if you go with me right quick, we'll take a look at the first point. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 6 through 10. Now, we are familiar with this epistle. Uh, We know that this is, according to many historians and the general consensus of the church, this is one of the last letters that the apostle wrote. This is, as a matter of fact, this is the last letter that he wrote during, during his second imprisonment in Rome. He was being charged of sedition. And teaching subversive doctrines against the empire, against Nero. And Nero had pinned upon the Christians the burning of the city of Rome. This happened in 64 AD. So the the historians and theologians, when they do their homework, they narrow this letter somewhere between 64 and 68 AD. So this is the context of the apostles. What we're going to see here is... Paul, given a brief summation of his faith and all the fruit that his faith has yielded, and he's recounting and looking forward, he's permeating in that assurance, that blessed assurance of salvation, and wants his disciple Timothy to have a grasp of this reality. And at the same time, we can glean from this passage a metric. How many of you know what a metric is? It's a standard of measurement, right? So what we're going to do from this passage, we're going to glean a metric for us to, to be able to measure our faith and, 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 and examine the fruit. So let us take a look. Beginning in verse 6, 2 Timothy 4, 6-10. It says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown. Of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. I want to emphasize that word, love. Why? Because we're going to see a pattern in this study. And that word will come again and again and again. And it will be, in these terms... In terms of affection to Christ. That's what Jonathan Edwards called "religions of religious affections. And the lack thereof. That becomes a lipnos test for us. And so he says that that crown of glory shall be given to him. Not only to him, but to whom? To all of those who had loved him the appearance of our lord jesus that is those who have believed the gospel those who have heard the gospel and though not seeing him have believed but then in verse 9 he presents to us a sad case in passage i want us to i want to exhort you that you understand uh, salvation in the life of the believer, not in terms of a flu shot, right? Not in terms of, I'm already done, did that, right? That that American way of salvation that you said the prayer, you came to the front, you're good to go, you've been plunged into the water, now you are vaccinated, come what may. But it's not the view, the apostolic view of salvation. So he says to us, To Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. But you can almost understand the desperation, not as in hopeless, but really lonely, of the apostle. Understand, he's writing from a dungeon, presumably from the maritime prison in Rome. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, listen, being in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica and Crescent has gone to Galatia. Now, sometimes the English language doesn't help us much in understanding the context of what is being said. But when he says Demas is in love with this present world, is not... The world as the creation of the world, as the world itself, right? The cosmos, but this is seculum. This is what the Latin version of scripture traduces like the seculum, the culture. The culture. He is in love with the culture and had deserted the apostle. Now, in stark contrast, here the Scripture presents to us two types of faith, right? The faith that endures and perseveres to the end, and a faith which is full of assurance and one that falters because isn't loved with the culture, with the law lo- with the world. So, in here we find the metric, the standard by, by which we can draw. Assurance and identify what kind of faith we possess. And what is this, what is this standard? Is loving Christ, loving the cause of Christ, as opposed to loving the world, therefore not loving Christ. Our Lord said it like this. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will love one and despise the other. No one can save, I mean, no one can serve God and money, right? That's, that's uh, what it is imbued here. Now, what love in the world, I want to define that biblically. I want to give you a biblical definition of what loving the world means. Now, here you go. Loving the world is being in love, that is, having affection. Having a deep affection with the unfruitful works of darkness, of the culture, and everything that elevates itself against the knowledge of Christ. Everything that the culture produces that sets itself against Christ and His rule. That is what love in the world means. Now, and, and it is important that we have a biblical understanding of these things. And how does the scripture deals with the liberties of the believer? Because you see, the, often the questions are set like this. Right? Just a way of example. Should I, should I as a Christian, uh, watch a movie that is not... Uh, should I watch Game of Thrones, for example? Is it a sin to watch game, game of Thrones? You know, right? Now, what I'm doing is that I, I'm trying to set myself in a position where I put me seeing these things against my liberty. We are quick to react. Wait a minute. You know, the kingdom of God is not a matter of watching Game of Thrones and all these things, Right? But that's not really the question. The question is this, why? Why? That's the question. Why? Now in I want you to know that feelings are not a metric for assurance because right, there's times, believe me that I don't feel like I'm safe, <laughs> you know. Especially when I look upon myself. If you look in, within yourself for assurance, you are setting yourself for a fall. It is the true we know of God that sets us free. Now, the question is, why, why, why do I want to, to, do, to do this? Would this advance me in the cause of Christ? Would this further me in sanctification? Is this honoring to Christ? Or he said, "The lust of the flesh, the pride of the eye, being tower in these things. Do I want to give approval of these things? Those are the questions that must be in our minds. Not that if I'm a Christian, should I lose my salvation and watch this thing? It's totally wrong. Yes." Is and that's something I've struggled with too. It's like okay, my conviction tells me not to do X, Y, and Z because right. I know it's not glorifying. But if we have to ask the question, just don't do it. It's like I guess it to be safe and when in doubt, don't. Right, but but that does something very interesting because you know in the confession is the first one of the first things that's mentioned is the conscience. Now you can have a bad informed conscience and therefore not being aware that you're sinning or. Be bothered for something that is not really a sin, but to him who, right, that's what the scripture says, to him who knows the good he ought to do and he doesn't do it, to him he's a sin. So there are areas in which are offers which are very few, but great areas. Indeed, they do exist. But, but, the majority of things that are considered offers they are not offers They really are violations of biblical principles. Nevertheless, all that comes from a lack of Knowing the word of God. Now, if you go with me to first John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, the apostle gives us a treatise of loving the world and what we should know of this religion, religious uh, religious affections, right? What we should know of what loving the world means and what should be our attitude and what should we think of loving the world and learn to identify. What loving the world, loving the culture, uh will imply in our lives. John First John chapter two, beginning in verse fifteen through seventeen. Now, if you want to have a biblical understanding of assurance, uh if you really wanna get into it, I strongly commend to you first John, second John and Third John. You'll get the apostolic teaching per excellent. Period. You have you'll have a biblical understanding of assurance because those letters were written by the Holy Spirit by the pen of John specifically to teach you to know that you are saved. Alright. So let us read. Beginning in verse fifteen says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now here comes the metric. He says, if anyone, now that, that is a conditional clause. It is conditional with a universal participle to it. What it means is that if this condition is met, everybody that falls into, into this category, everybody that falls into this category is what it follows, what is being said. You follow me? So it says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, what we must understand, that in this case, therefore, the love for the world is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that the Spirit of God produces in the believer, who is at work. We remember... uh, Philippians, uh, I think it's 2.12, right? When it exhorts us to work out our salvations with fear and tremble, because it is God who is at work to do both, to will, and to what? And to work, right? To do. So, in verse 16 we read, for all that it is in the world, right? Again, this is not creation. It's not the animals. It's not the mountains. It's not the beautiful landscapes and all these things. Right? We should glory in these things because God expresses His glories in these things. Right? The creation reflects the marvelous deeds of God. That's not what is in viewed here. What is in viewed here is a culture. The attitude of humanity towards life and God. That's what is imbued. So, for all that is in the world, that is the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Right, here it comes. Quite simple. It says, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Now, if we follow the apostle and what he's saying, let us continue. Verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So that is why in the beginning I said to you that God has orchestrated things in such a way so that you can have true biblical faith and assurance only in the context of living our lives in alignment with the moral restrictions, affections, and imperatives set forth by God to His people in Holy Scripture. In other words, the evidence that John provides is that those who belong to God do the will of God not as a condition for salvation. It's not what John is saying. It's not saying, well, if you don't do the will of God, you're not of, uh, you're not, you cannot be of God. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you do the will of God, that shows that you are from God. And the proof is what? That you remain. You abide forever. Forever. You don't pull a... What what was the name of this guy? Uh, Joshua Harris? Right? You don't falter. You remain. And the proof that you are of His is that you remain in the faith. Now, so if... In conclusion, just to move on, if the fruit that a person is yielding is more in alignment with the fruit of the flesh then that person cannot have assurance, at least not a biblical one. And this should be a great cause of concern. So eventually these people being in love with the world, eventually they wither away, and when confronted with the trials that all Christians must, must face, they will abandon the faith. Now the question again, does that mean that they have lost their salvation? Right. That's a question that we must uh, answer. That means that they lost their salvation. The answer to that is a categorical Uh, uh, Yeah. Uh, So if a person that uh, is yielding a fruit that is more and more in alignment with the Fruit of the flesh, that person cannot have assurance, but at least not a biblical one, but should have a great cause for concern. I guess my my question would be, you know, because we're going to produce fruit at different levels, 30, 60, 100 fold. And if I have a huge understanding of my sinfulness, and I recognize I'm, I'm very... Lots of bad fruit, but my assurance is in the Lord. I've just, I've just been revealed the weight of my sin. Uh, I can see how that can be confusing and saying it that way. You know what I mean? Like if you're weighing out good fruit and bad fruit, I, it just kind of sounded a little bit. Yeah, I understand the concern, and it is, a, it is, a, it is a legit concern. But we must understand that in the Scripture. We, and I'm working out to that, actually. In Scripture, we are called by our Savior himself to examine the fruit. He said, the fruit shall be known, the tree shall be known, not by what it proclaims to be, but by its fruit. So, in the level of me, and then again, I'm not. The holy police, and we are not to be that. We, we, we must be concerned first with our own salvation. That's why, previous to that, the Lord said that we are to examine first the log in our eye and then the speck in our brother's eye. Nevertheless, there is a practice of discernment that should be applied in which we must understand that sin for the believer is a... And if you want a dissertation for that, go to chapter 7 of Romans, where the apostle lays forth how he struggles with the flesh. Where he has a desire in his heart for to do good, but nevertheless, he finds in the members of his body a different law at work. Nevertheless, he says, blessed be God. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, those who live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. So, in the overscheme of the believer, in the overarching identification of the believer, at the level of affection, and that's why I said affection, because that's the litmus test the Scripture presents to, to us. Do we love Him? Is He precious to us? Because everything that is not of faith is a sin. So yes, granted, the believer will struggle with sin. But if sin is what characterizes you, if you live in a pattern of continual sin, there is no transformation whatsoever. That's that's why it says... If your life is in more alignment with the fruit of the flesh, with what is laying forth here in Scripture, then you have a cause for concern. And it is good that you have it. Because better to make sure here than to get in the other side and hear those dreaded works, right? And we're building up to that, actually. If you go with me to Matthew, chapter 7, beginning in verse 22 and 23, is the very thing laid out before us. That's why we said that feelings and retrospective are never standards for our assurance, neither against it or for it. We must draw biblical assurance, biblical metrics, in order for us to make sure that we are in the truth. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? That's very interesting. Now I talk to people when I go evangelizing, and uh, sometimes uh, it comes out that they have been told, you know, that if they said this prayer, uh, they, they they will be saved, and they live in in crasp sin, you know, and I I confront them with the law of God and, and trying to make them understand what the predicament is. And they always run to this. Yeah, but I accepted Jesus into my heart. And what happens is that they have been vaccinated against the gospel. They have been vaccinated because somebody told them that if they said the prayer, they were good to go. Right, and they profess Jesus. Sometimes they're wearing crosses, you know, or they have it, the face of what should be Jesus tattooed on their shoulder, you know, and all these things. But listen, listen, not everyone who says to me, not only one time, Lord, but if you understand the the grammatical rules of writing of Jewish in Hebrew, repetition is emphasis. Lord, Lord means, I really, I really know you. I am intimate. I am within the ranks of the church. Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. Again, what Christ is doing here, he's not setting forth for us a condition for salvation, but a description of salvation. Now, verse 22, here is the meat of the passage. Listen to what it says. On that day, that is the day of reckoning. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out Demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this is very interesting because, you see, the Greek construction of this working of lawlessness, the word is anomia, means... Against the law. But it's given in a a present tense. Which means it keeps happening. So what is Christ saying to, to the reader here is that. Depart from me you who never repented. You who never changed. You who kept breaking my law. That's what he's rejecting. That is what he is saying. I never knew you. Because if I had known you. Then you would have repented. Therefore you have no part with me. So. These people. Our Lord is talking about. Are ranking members. Of the visual church. They were orthodox in their theology. And even call him Lord. But they remain practicing lawless deeds. So how good of God that he has provided assurance of salvation, not in profession of faith alone, but in the grounds of the evidences of our faith. If you go with me to James chapter 2 verses 18 through 19, the apostle lays this forth for us very clear. Remember, the key word, so that you do not misunderstand what I'm saying, the key word here is this. Evidences. What we're looking for is the evidence of the inward reality. What we're tracing is the blueprint of the architect. Right? When I'm not much into arts, but at work, I, you know, there's many of us. I work with many guys, and there's a guy that his name is Louis, and we all know his handiwork. And he has a way with wires, and he just twisted things around and overcomplicated things. So when we, each one of us, get something that Louis worked on, we said that was a Louis, that was a Louis job. We can tell the the architect, the one who did it, who did it. Only to illustrate, not to compare. Only to illustrate the point. Okay. Now this is James, and in the context, remember the three rules of uh, biblical interpretation. Right, the three rules of interpretation: context. Context, context, right. The apostle here is dealing with the very thing. He's dealing with a a fruitless faith. He's dealing with the church, with those who claim Christ, but yet remain fruitless. So he wants to provide common sense. He's, he's He's very laid forth. Many have put James against Paul because many the Catholic Church used actually this epistle against Luther, saying, you see here, James is saying that salvation is not accomplished by faith alone, but you need to have works. This is not what James is doing. James is only presenting the side of the, other, the, of the same coin, which is, if you have faith, this is what it comes with it. Okay, so here it goes. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith through my works. Verse 19, it says, you believe there is one God, you do well. Now, what do he mean by that? And what this means is this. You are orthodox in your theology, but remain unrepented. Now, this is very interesting because, you see, you can tell these people, you cannot tell these people apart from the culture by the way they live, by their lifestyles. You cannot tell them apart. They look like the world, they smell like the world, they talk like the world, they act like the world. Only by their theology you can tell them apart. Yet they remain unrepentant. That's what James means. You say there is one God. That's the touching stone of orthodoxy for Jewish people. You know that, right? Deuteronomy 6. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? You're orthodox. Right on. But yet, yet you remain unrepentant. So he says, you say there is one God and you do well. But I tell you, even demons believed. And to quote Dr. Arsis Pro in this passage, he said, What James is saying here is that if you have a faith that is dead, that only qualifies you at best to be a demon. Dr. Arsis Pro, not my words. But I tell you that even demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, or you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he goes on and lays forth how Abraham believed and because he believed he worked. It's the same argument we see in Hebrews 11. Right? What is it? What is the argument? By faith, Moses, by faith, Abraham, by faith, all these heroes of the faith, right? They had a fruit-yielding faith. Now, understand this. This is not God placing a condition to bear fruit in order to be saved. Thus putting the car before the horse. What it's doing is allowing us to recognize... Allowing us to catalog and understand this is God bringing the magnified glass and allowing us to have biblical standards to recognize what a true living faith looked like and what a dead false conversion looked like. Now, the intention of the apostle is to establish a sound understanding of what true genuine faith is and what is not. There are people who sear their consciences by holding to a biblical assurance based upon men's doctrines and presuppositions. And that is why the confession says that their hope shall perish at the end. Right? So that's what, that's what we're trying to do. Now that we have that foundation, let us go to the other side. If you go with me uh, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now here Peter in chapter 1, he lays forth for us the biblical doctrines assuring us and showing us how and why we should have this living faith and what is the reality of all believers. Now, I remind us of what the confession says at the end of the first paragraph in regards to this. It says, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in a good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. That's wonderful, is it not? All right. First Peter. Now, before I plunge into this passage, I want to say this. We must understand that all these assurances come to us by means of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says in his first letter to the Roman Church. That in the gospel there is the power of God unto salvation. For all who believe. For the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Because in this gospel, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. Just as it is written, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. So that is our foundation. And this is what Peter is talking about. Okay, so let's begin in verse 3. And here the apostle begins saying these things. In the light of the great persecution that has ensued in accordance to uh, what Nero has done. Blaming the Christians of the fire in Rome in 64 AD. This is a reaction to that. Peter wants to exhort the believers. Listen to what he says. He begins by blessing God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, right? that, That is important. Because what he is saying here is that what follows, it is in accordance not to what he sees in us, not because we deserve it at all, but because the cause of what he's about to disclose to the readers is because of the grace of God. So he says, according to his great mercy, he has cost us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? That's the gospel, that is the seed upon which the believers must build the foundation, that that regular fide, that universal faith delivered to the believers once and for all by the testimony of the apostles. So he says, he has cost us to be born again, right? You understand what the apostle is saying? Not a, yeah what is the implication of that statement? Right. And if God is at work in you accordingly what can you expect from your salvation? Right. Conformity to to Christ. Right. Romans 8, right, that he who knew us has set us apart, predestined us to be conforming to the image of his son. So, it carries the character of him. And that's why further in the letter he says, be holy because I am holy. Now, so he says he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, listen, I, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, the word used for guarded is a military term. It's what... Do you remember when our Lord was placed inside the tomb and there was a sign to the tomb, a, a group of soldiers to, to guard the tomb to so make sure that no one would steal the body? You remember that in the, in, in the Gospels? That is the same word used here to describe how God is protecting you. To describe how God is keeping you. To describe how God is guarding you. And He will make sure that you do not falter. He will make sure that He does not lose you. Now, if you pay attention to the text, you will see the means by which this takes place. Which is what? Faith. Says you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, he says, This is very important. Listen, in this you rejoice. Now, in what? In what he just said, in the reality that you have been saved. That is not of yourselves, but you were caused by God to be born again. You are now guarded through faith. Now, in this reality, he says, you rejoice through, excuse me, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have grieved in various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Alright, so what what is the apostle doing here? He's laying forth before you all the doctrinal uh, teachings, all, all the doctrinal teachings, all the, all the doctrinal indicatives, he's laying forth the reason for the faith. He's saying, you should be assured you are being guarded, you have been born again, God has done this, it's not of yourselves, but it's the work of God. All this is true. And then he moves on from the doctrinal indicatives, and then he moves to the experience. Listen to what he says. Listen to what, this is marvelous. Listen to what he says. He says this. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. He says, though you have never seen him, you love him. Now that's important, you know why? Because you see, I can fake almost anything That is laid forth as evidences for my salvation. And deceive myself. I can be moralistic. I can have an outer appearance of piety. But the one thing I cannot deceive myself with is this. That he is precious to me. That I love him. That He is my all in all. And no matter what happens, He's my first love. I cannot deceive myself with that. Because of all the things I can do, like the apostle said, I can give my body to the fire, I can speak in the tongues of angels and know all things, prophesy all things. But if I have no love, I have nothing. The one thing I cannot cheat myself with is not loving Him. And every believer, at the very essence and fundamental understanding of their salvation, they know this. He's precious. You love Him. Something changed. As to before you ran away from Him... And now you're here today, seeking to know him more. Why do you do that? Because you love him, because he's precious. because you can live without him. So the apostle moves from the reality of the doctrines and what God has done, and he says, "This is the result." Of this truth, true. You love him. He's precious. Listen to what he says. To finish. He says. Though you do not see him now. You believe in him. And rejoice with joy inexpressible. And are filled with glory. Obtaining. The outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. In the Greek, the word for obtaining is a very interesting word. It is only used when you are receiving something that it was long due and held back for you. It is only used when you receive something that it was promised to you, majority of the cases by your father, but for whatever reason he held it back from you but now he's giving it to you. Beloved, there is many passages that assure you of this reality. That if you're in Christ you can have the assurance of salvation. The scripture clearly states that if anyone shall call upon the name of the Lord, a person shall be saved. And that's the word of God. A person shall be a new creation. The apostle Paul said it like this. Behold, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You cannot have assurance of salvation without the fruit of salvation. Let us pray. Oh Father, we thank you for your word which is true. Father, we give you praise that we know that you have called us out of the domain of darkness and have qualified us to be partakers into the inheritance of your Son into the light and have placed us in His kingdom and in Him we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We thank you, Lord, for this marvelous truth. And we give you praise, glory, and honor. And we thank you, Lord God. And I pray, dear God, that you bring conviction to our hearts. Give us understanding and humility to submit to your word, Father. That we may examine ourselves in the light of the truth, in the light of your word. And that we do not cling to false Man-made methodologies or our presumptions. But rather take a biblical understanding of these doctrines, Father. Give us understandings. Give us grace, Father. Also, Father, give us humility and love for one another, Father. That we have the bond of unity and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, Father, in the truth. We thank you, Lord, for these things. Father, we also elevate in prayers this morning our pastors... We pray for them and their families, Father. We pray, Lord, that you will bless them with every blessing, Father, necessary for the ministry. That you will, Father, provide for them and their children, Father. That you will bless them, Lord, and avail them of every blessing, Father, for they need it so, Father. We pray for them and that you protect them, Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, guys, thank you.